You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Born in Inverness in 1976, Stuart McRae has established himself as one of the most distinctive of contemporary composers. Stuart's music has been performed at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, the BBC Proms and the Edinburgh International Festival by ensembles including the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, Scottish Ensemble and London Sinfonietta. Often inspired by aspects of natural landscape, Stuart's music draws on various strands of European modernism, including the music of Stravinsky, Carter, Zanakis, and most significantly, Maxwell Davis. Hello, how's it going? It's going great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your latest album, Ursa Minor, performed by the Hebrides Ensemble, which has just been released on Delphine Records. Could you give us a brief overview of how this album has come about? Yeah, um, I was talking to Will Conway from the Hebrides Ensemble uh, about... About three years ago or so, maybe actually it was just uh, just over two years ago, and he was uh, saying he'd quite like to commission something new from me, uh, but we didn't know what at that time, uh, and also to start thinking about the possibility of putting together an album, and it was just a kind of possibly at some time in the future kind of thing at that point, uh, and then once the pandemic came along. Obviously, the Hebrides Ensemble were not able to do any of their concerts and things, so they decided to kind of bring all of that recording project forward and say, uh, all right, let's try and record the pieces that you've already written for us. And then they usually like to include some things that are from the composer's past, you know, from earlier in their career, uh, and also something new if possible. So all the kind of uh, resources and priority went into that recording project. Uh, so uh, the funny thing is, you know, some of the pieces they've recorded on this album, they've still never actually had the chance to perform them live. So it's quite an unusual kind of backwards process, but uh, it's been really nice that they were able to bring it together during the difficult last couple of years. Yeah, brilliant. The album features a collection of chamber works that have been written over the last 25 years. Is there a particular thread that you can point to that has been present in your music throughout that time? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Um, I suppose it's not it's not unusual for composers or other artists, but a kind of fascination with nature and the ways that you can kind of imaginatively transform your experience of nature or thoughts about it or even, you know, feelings about nature uh, into music. So for me, it's always a kind of um, a slightly abstract process, you know, whereby there'll be just something that catches my eye or imagination that then kind of locks in with whatever piece of music I happen to be thinking of or writing at the moment and then the two become one thing and I think looking through the pieces you know I like looking at natural objects from different kind of perspectives so if you look at an early piece like Tall Pedney which is a sort of three minute uh, chamber piece that I wrote in about 1998 I think um, the idea hit me when I was uh, walking on the coast in Cornwall and at the top of the cliffs at a place called Tall Pedney um, I was just struck by the fact that, you know, all these waves from up above just seemed so distant, calm, still. 
And then when we got down to the shore, you could see that they were absolutely massive kind of breakers. Just sort of seeing the same thing from two different perspectives and somehow trying to tease out this idea of something that has a lot of energy and activity on the surface, but a much slower kind of rhythm overall. That's something that comes back in quite a few of these pieces. I think Cladonia Flora a little bit as well. Um, and Phthenoperinos, uh, you know, often they're kind of slowish works, those nature-inspired ones, I think. But yeah, so I think that's one thing. And the other thing is mythology. Part of it came about because when I was younger, I never really studied classics or Greek myths and legends. And uh, I always felt that was a little bit of a deficit because when other people talked about it, I didn't know what they were talking about, you know, who's who's Prometheus kind of thing, you know. Uh, but that, that in a way kind of spurred me to just kind of start finding out more. And it's not that I kind of have a deep understanding of those things, but sometimes these archetypal kind of stories of mythology kind of jump out at me and... Um, something catches my imagination and then I start relating it again to the piece that I'm writing. Well, that, that kind of leads on nicely because the, the first piece on the album is I Am Prometheus, which was written in 2018. Uh, this particular work is for tenor and chamber ensemble and you, you wrote the text yourself. So how did you approach this particular sort of compositional process, juggling the music and the text? Yeah, that was a really like new venture for me I I hadn't ever written my own text for a piece of music before and uh, you know I've done a lot of text setting over the years uh, gradually getting more confident with it but usually I like using someone else's text uh, in this particular instance I didn't decide to set my own text so much as I came up with a text which I then decided was going to work in the piece and then then the two things became one in a way um so I'd been thinking for a long time about writing a piece or a series of pieces about Prometheus. And in a nutshell, Prometheus is a titan who gets in trouble with Zeus because he steals fire from the gods and gives it to humans, which then gives them the power of knowledge and it allows them to do things that the gods think should be reserved to them. So Prometheus's punishment from Zeus is to be chained at the top of a mountain uh, and to have a vulture come and peck out his liver every day. And then because he's immortal, it repairs itself. So it's an eternal kind of suffering until he repents. Um, don't ask why that subject matter appeals to me particularly. <laughs> I don't why know does that, that subject matter yeah, yeah. appeal to you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about there's something about the resilience of Prometheus and the fact that he's able to be incredibly lucid and wise and accepting of his fate because he kind of knows that from his point of view he's in the right that he's done a good thing really. And the other thing about Prometheus that's really fascinating is he's not human, you know, he's somewhere between a god and a, and a human in a way. And I think there's, there's something about that kind of negotiating those two worlds and refusing to back down about it that I find really admirable, particularly in the version as told by, by Aeschylus, you know, uh, Prometheus Bound was the play that he wrote. And I've read several different translations into English of that because I, I can't read the Greek. Um, yeah, so I, while I was looking into that, I had to get rid of a couple of ghosts from the past because the, the, there's a piece that's been really important to me by Luigi Nono called Prometeo, which is a very kind of uh, abstract, scaled back, um, stark kind of 
it's not even a telling of the Prometheus myth, but more a kind of abstract musical cantata based on the ideas around Prometheus. And that's one of the first pieces of modern music that I ever heard. It was, a, strangely enough, a bit of it was on a TV broadcast on Channel 4 or something when I was a teenager. And I just thought, wow, I mean, what is this? It's incredible. And then it took me about a year and a half or two years to find out what the piece was really, uh, and then explore it further. But I had to kind of put aside my admiration for that piece in order to write my own kind of response to it, because by the time I was going to do this, I had been reading various different, as I say, translations of the Prometheus myth. And for this piece, I Am Prometheus, the thing that struck me was having just been reading a lot of those translations, I was thinking, well, which one am I going to use? Which extract from these massive texts am I actually going to be able to cut out and use in this piece. And um, it was a really weird thing. It was after a day of teaching, I was heading back and I went and got into the car park and sat in my car and I just thought, got my phone out and thought, I'll just uh, I'll just make a few notes because a few words had just sort of jumped into my head. And then literally the whole text of that piece, with a few small changes, uh, literally the whole text just came out just in one go. I was sitting there in the car park for about half an hour, you know, <laughs> typing this wee thing into my phone. And I think it was just that I was trying to get so much into the character that I almost felt like I was able to speak from his point of view to nobody in particular and tell his story from the first person perspective, which was not something I had planned on doing. It just came out. And um, immediately I started thinking, well, you know, maybe... I should set this text. Maybe I should just be bold and make it my text. And I know it's not great poetry, but it works with the music. And that's the thing with text setting is that it's not so important that the that the text that you set is the best poetry in the world. It's that it gives rise to interesting combinations of words and music. So that's, that's how it happened. It was kind of random. I'm not necessarily planning on repeating it, but uh, I was really pleased at the way it came together in the end. Imagine me sitting. like icebergs I wear a chain fastened to a shackle about my neck
As well as writing frequently for chamber and instrumental forces, you have written several operas. How does this process differ, if at all, when working with these different mediums? Yeah, I think um, I've become increasingly confident with writing um, opera in the last decade or so. And it was a bit of a tricky start for me with opera because my first opera, The Assassin Tree, which was at the Edinburgh International Festival in 2006 was not a success. You know, it was, um, you know, I liked, I liked a lot of things about it, but the reviews were shocking and people didn't really like it and didn't really get it. And it was, uh, I kind of thought, well, maybe this opera thing's just not for me. But I felt really sad about that because actually I had loved the process of making it so much. And I, I, I thought, wow, this is really... Fantastic, but I hadn't addressed a lot of the key questions. So I was really lucky then to have the opportunity to work with Scottish Opera on their 515 project in 2009, where they commissioned kind of new pairings of composers and librettists. And I was working with Louise Welsh, mainly renowned as an author, but now as a librettist as well, really. And the thing that was missing, I think, before was this kind of storytelling aspect, which is something I... I suppose it was a kind of modernist hangover from my education or or the the pieces I'd liked as a student. But um, I never really thought about storytelling in music before. And I almost thought that it was a dirty word, you know, to, to make it a little bit too easy for the audience. I didn't really think there was any need to do that. And I think it was after that first opera I realised I'd kind of gone too far for me. And I needed to get some of that storytelling element into my music uh, and to make it kind of speak to an audience in a more fluent way. Um, and that's what Louise was really able to bring in, as well as a lot of beautiful language that I would never have thought of. And she's, oh, she's great at having these clever kind of relationships and correspondences across the text between things. So I think bringing in that storytelling element, it really has had a big effect on my other music as well. And I think it's made me really think about the audience more. It's made me think about using parts of myself and my musical taste and my musical ideas that I had maybe shut out before or that I'd not engaged with properly. So for me, it's a kind of feedback process that the better I get at writing opera, the more it kind of changes my chamber music and my orchestral music, if I was writing any, you know. <laughs> but uh, it, I think um, 
you have to be also feeding it the other way as well. So I think if you get too involved in the world of always just writing for singers and things, then you forget some things about instrumental music too. So I, I find them kind of balancing each other and complementing each other really well. But there's no doubt about it that writing opera has profoundly changed my attitude to writing music of all sorts. Um, and I'm much more thinking about how the audience are going to receive something, you know, an abstract audience than I used to be. So yeah, moving on to one of your more recent pieces on the album, Ursa Minor. Can you tell us a little bit about the title and how it's reflected in the music? Yeah, um, Ursa Minor is, the, it's the name of a constellation, for those who, who don't know. Um, I didn't know a couple of years ago really much about it. I'd heard of it, but I didn't know which one it was. Uh, but it was uh, during, you know, one of the many lockdowns. <laughs> yeah, I was in the winter of 2020, uh, December 2020. Uh, there was loads of snow on the ground at that time, you know, it lasted for ages. And I was going for a lot of walks uh, quite late at night because uh, I really like going out in the snow and uh, in the dark and things. And I was going for sort of maybe an hour long walk most nights and the skies were really clear. And I kept on seeing this very faint kind of far away looking constellation. You know, you're used to seeing the Plough and Orion and that's those are the only two I really kind of notice usually. But And they kind of come and go. They move out of the frame of vision after a certain time of night. But this one, Ursa Minor, kind of rotates around the pole star, around the North Star. And um, it's always there, you know, when the sky is clear enough, it's always there. Um, and just slowly kind of oh, rotating around this fixed point. So I remember noticing that and thinking, mm, I better find out what that one is. That's quite interesting. Um, because it was a bit like what our lives were like at that moment, you know, um, where life was going forwards and carrying on. But it became very rep repetitive, you know. Uh, we weren't going anywhere. We weren't able to see people. We were stuck in our own houses. And maybe the daily routine became much more repetitive and mundane. So I saw that kind of as a, a neutralising way of looking at it. Again, kind of looking at things through nature as something that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, but just something that is, you know, accepting it. And then... As soon as I had the kind of go-ahead for what instruments I was going to write for, I just went for it. And um, I just sat at the piano and played these first sort of 10 notes or something like that and then put a little chord around them. And there was something kind of about that rotation, the way they rotate around a particular pitch, uh, changing slightly but always coming back to the same place. And that immediately connected in my mind with this kind of idea of Ursa Minor and this revolving constellation.
So moving on to Cladonia Bella de Flora for violin and cello, could you tell us a little bit more about how you approached this piece? Uh, the Cladonia are uh, a class of lichens. They're a group of lichens. Um, and they're really kind of striking looking lichen that, that have these kind of green, little green kind of spouts with a kind of cup in the top and then a little red kind of ball in the top. And I saw these uh, on the top of a mountain, kind of everything was quite misty and snowy. And I went for a walk uh, in the Afric Hills in the Highlands uh, on my own. And uh, at the top, the weather was terrible. So, I mean, I had to have my lunch kind of sheltering behind a boulder. So I was like right next to this boulder, both sides of my head. And then I looked to my left and it was just the weirdest looking uh, lichen that I'd ever seen was just right there. I was like, well, I've not seen one of those before. So then I looked up and found out what it was. And, and indeed, it is one of the few places that that particular lichen grows in the UK is uh, is up in the the tops of the hills in the Central Highlands. So um, I don't know, that planted a, a, a just an interesting thing. I probably took some photos of it and then forgot about it for a while, for maybe even for years, you know. And then the violin and cello duo, um, Sequoia, got in touch with me about a project they were doing called Transplanted where they were commissioning lots of composers to write short pieces based on flora of the UK, wildflowers mainly. And I said, well, I've got this idea. It's not exactly a flower because, you know, a lichen is not a plant, really. It's a kind of, um, there's a symbiosis between a fungus and an alga and they kind of work together. And um, they said, yes, great, that fits the fits the bill. And, uh, you know, th- it was that idea of the symbiosis. So partly the weirdness, but also the idea of the of the two things being so kind of closely bound up and enmeshed with each other that they don't really have their own identity. And I thought, okay, what does that kind of symbiosis mean in musical terms? So it means, I suppose, lots of close imitation of playing around the same intervals. And then I've got these kind of very slow glissandi, uh, very slowly falling glissandi, which kind of makes you think of two things going as closely together as possible but there's inevitably going to be just a little bit of deviation between them. So it emphasizes the togetherness and the separateness at the same time, I think.
It also has a slightly strange form, the piece, because uh, Sonia and Alice uh, from Sequoia, they asked for the piece to be um, on one page. <laughs> they, want, they wanted all the pieces to be on one page, but they wanted it to be about six minutes. And I thought, that, I mean, have you seen my music? It's, you know, that's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> um, they said, well, you know, it doesn't matter what size the page is. So, so I did it on a, like, on an A1 piece of 
it literally was like one landscape a1 piece of paper which they had to like they had to buy a like, special portfolio case to carry it around in was, <laughs> uh, and in the concerts they had to get this massive thing up onto this <laughs> i've still got a couple of them uh, somewhere but yeah I, i've done a better kind of presentation of it since but uh, it was cheating but uh, the for it influenced the form of the piece though because i used repetition and varied repetition in a way that I wouldn't usually have done. I mean, it's about eight years ago now. Um, and it kind of prompted me to think, okay, which are the little bits here where I can use repetition creatively to kind of build the form of the piece without just writing lots of new things? And I suppose, you know, in some ways without, you know, all kind of joking about that format aside, I think repetition has started to become a more important thing in my music as well. And again, that's part of acknowledging that it maybe my kind of earlier aesthetic of always writing things that are quite challenging and and sort of not giving too much away and saying well if you do a repeat of course it has to be different the second time well now I think why why should it have to be different I mean that's not the way we listen is it it's not the way we hear things and therefore I suppose it's an experiment for me and and kind of how I can use repetition creatively not as a kind of fallback but as a way of building a form in a more recognisable way. I'm just interested um, with the pieces we've been talking about here in your chamber music work. It seems like there's always some sort of impetus, like some sort of idea or, or title first. Do you find that important when you're doing just purely instrumental music because you don't have, you know, the text or whatever as a sort of starting point? Yes, and I guess that goes back to the question about the comparison between instrumental music, for example, and, and operas. With opera, I'm never stuck because any day that I come down and sort of think, oh, how am I going to write music today? Because that's what it's like, you know. It's like, <laughs> I think I'm really, like, the, I always get to, like, the end of the day and I think, I'm really buzzing about this idea. I can't get to sleep, you know. I don't like going going to bed at night because I'm still thinking, you know. And I'm like, oh, that, that, I'm really excited about this. And then I wake up in the morning and I think, oh, how am I going to do this? You know, <laughs> and it takes me it takes me half the day to get into a position where I feel like I can actually write something usefully. And um, but with opera, that I found that's changed that because I always have the words, I always have the libretto to return to, and that kind of starts the creative process straight away, and I'm right in there. So if I'm not working on a particular passage in opera, then I'll just read some libretto, keep reading it, and then something will jump out at me and as soon as it does I engage with it and I start working on that. Instrumental music doesn't give you that opportunity so much. I mean there are ways of uh, kind of creating a similar situation but uh, you're right. I, I formulated an idea really quite early on in my life, you know, like when I was still in my teens I think, where I noticed that when I was composing in order to kind of feel like I was making progress or, or I knew how to go ahead I had to have three things and one of them was some musical material, you know, notes, rhythms, whatever that I was really interested in. Uh, The second thing was an idea of what the form of the piece was going to be. And the third one was some kind of extra musical impetus, you know, some kind of idea from outside the music that was going to inform it in a way. Not to say that the music was about that, but that it was going to inform the composition process and, and the things I thought about while I was writing and that informs the decision making processes in the music too and I've never kind of applied it as a strict rule but it's just an observation that I had and 
the older I get, the less important it seems to me, but I think it's always still there in the background. Nice one. Um, well, moving on to Dark Liquid, which is a short solo piano piece, which seems to encapsulate quite a different sound world um, to other works that I've heard of yours. Um, could you talk a little bit about this piece? Yeah, um, I can. I'm, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I agree. I agree with. I agree with you that it's encapsulates a different sound world. But I'd be really interested to know in what way you think it's different. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it was the, the idea of repetition quite boldly, and the way that it sort of zoned in on a particular harmonic well pattern and also just it didn't stray too far and I guess when in other pieces of yours although repetition isn't you know as obvious there's there's more subtle things that happen like you know texture or timbre or other things whereas this one was quite I don't want to use the straightforward but it was very like that is yeah did what it (laughs) said on the tin you know like yeah that was my observation yeah, good. Yes. Okay. That, but it's good to pinpoint that because, you know, the funny thing is I, you might think that I would have a good insight into exactly how it's different, but it's, it's more interesting in a way to me to think about how it's different to somebody else. Um, because to me, all of my pieces are different objects, you know, even if there are mm. patterns that repeat from one piece to another, and maybe I can sort of see broad groupings of pieces as, as types. Um, I still kind of see every piece as being a thing in its own right. But I think I would acknowledge that, you know, for Dark Liquid, there's more direct repetition of the same kind of phrase. There's a lot of pedal, you know, piano pedal down, and uh, it's a kind of washy, sustained sound with arpeggios. And it's also, you know, it's kind of quite tonal. It's not my most tonal piece by a long way nowadays, but... It's kind of atmospheric music, isn't it? And that's the thing. Yeah. It's, and and it's it doesn't quite lush try... as well. Yeah. It's lush and it's atmospheric, and it doesn't. I think the crucial thing for me is that it doesn't try and develop that atmosphere, but it tries to stay in it for a short, digestible period of time. And that wasn't a conscious decision in any way whatsoever. Uh, in fact, I can tell you that the whole piece was basically improvised, uh, and I recorded it. So I played it once through. Um, and thought, oh, I quite like this, but I haven't got time to write this down properly just now. I'll just switch my phone on and record it. Uh, so then I concentrated a little bit harder and tried to play the same thing again with a few improvements. And it was an improvisation, and then I transcribed it later. And um, it was only after that that this uh, title, Dark Liquid, came to mind, because when listening to it, that again, it was that was a kind of image that came into my mind having listened to it. The thing is, that kind of semi-improvised piano piece that I kind of usually just play for myself, um, I've been doing that like all through my life, you know, since I was about, you know, 15 or 16 years old and um, I'm just never doing anything with it, you know. So sometimes I would sketch the ideas down and say, oh, well, I'll make this into a proper piece later. Or sometimes I would say, right, okay, that was fun, but it's totally cheesy and I'm never doing anything with it again. And I've got loads and loads of like old bits of manuscript paper with these kind of sketches from decades ago uh, somewhere in a box. And um, I just decided that, that was one piece where I thought, right, OK, I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to offer it as one of a selection of new piano pieces 
that could fill this album a little bit because they wanted some short pieces. So again, it wasn't really my idea, but they, uh, Will Conway suggested that maybe there, there might be some short piano pieces that, that could fit in and just be a kind of palate cleanser between some of the big pieces. So I said, okay, I gave him about six of them and he and I think James Wilshire, the pianist, chose three of them between them and Dark Liquid was one of them. Um, and since then, I think it gave me a bit of confidence that nobody said, oh, this is not a, this is this is not really used to it. This is, <laughs> this is something else. Um, they never said anything like that. Uh, and the recording session was really fun and uh, it went really smoothly and James just did a beautiful job of, of playing it. And uh, that gave me some confidence to actually start recording some of my own improvisations. And I've started releasing those on Bandcamp as well. So I released my first album of improvisations a couple of months ago on Bandcamp and uh, there'll probably be more to come as well. But I, I think in, in some ways it's an it's an exercise, but it's also an outlet for a side to my creativity that I've basically suppressed and, and denied for a long time for no reason in particular, maybe just being too busy with with other things. But I think I've had the space and time to think recently, OK, I don't want to hold back parts of my creative personality. I want to actually express it all. And I think it's more generous to do that. And it's up to other people to decide what's worthwhile, what's likable, what they want to listen to. Um, and, and on that note, it's really interesting because Dark Liquid was the, the one piece that Delphian Records chose to kind of promote to playlists and things like that when they were releasing the... Um, the album and in the first week of being released it got put on on a on this apple music playlist called uh piano chill which is <laughs> like <laughs> which is like you know it's all that kind of music that people listen to in the background you know they're not really listening to it they just want something soothing unobtrusive in the background that's quite nice and it got on this playlist and i'll tell you what it's got more streams probably 30 or 40 times the total number of streams of anything I've ever had on streaming services in the past, just from that one week of being on a playlist. So uh, there's a lesson in there somewhere, isn't <laughs> You know, that, you know, maybe these big serious pieces are right. That's important to me to do that, and it always will be. And it's also what some people really want from me and want to listen to. But it's really nice and affirming to know that I'm capable of writing something that has another kind of use, you know, that other people will enjoy even if they're they'll never know it's by me or they, they'll never pay attention to who's playing it or or written it but uh, you know it's quite satisfying to be able to do something that can fit into that kind of context without really having had to try you know yeah I think I spent no. an hour on that piece one hour you know in, in total playing it recording it transcribing it tidying up the score that even including the recording session I reckon I spent an hour on that so it's uh, it's just funny, isn't it? You know, you tear your hair out for months and months and nobody listens to it. And then you write something <laughs> in an hour and, you know, suddenly it's... Oh. An hour well spent. An hour, an hour well, well spent. spent. Yeah. yeah. Next time spend... I'm having a bubble bath with a glass of wine, I'll stick on piano <laughs> chill and listen for dark liquids well, to come up. Well, it's already off that playlist now, though, because oh, they change what? it every oh. week. Yeah, yeah. It's so, not interested I mean, now. I know, yeah. Well, no, no, I'm sure there's some great stuff on there. Uh, it's, I'm now its number one fan, you know, that place. <laughs> no, but it, it's a lesson, isn't it? it? You know, it does teach us something, I think, that uh, audiences and the way they listen, and I think we shouldn't beat ourselves up as composers for sometimes having small audiences um, because... 
the big audiences, really, it's a factor of the way people listen, and it's it's completely fine for people to engage with music in in a more passive way. And most people do, you know, they have music on in the background uh, while they're doing other things, and that's fine. But uh, that's it. It takes the pressure off a little bit because you think, okay, you know, not everyone wants to sit and have a really intense fifteen minutes of listening to something serious, you know, it's, uh, and that's okay. It's there, but it's not for everybody. Thank you. 